0: Welcome to High Tide, Low Tide, the podcast where we talk about all things mental health and where we share our stories with the knowledge that it could just be the lifeline of hope for someone who is hurting and afraid that they're the only one. I'm your host, Lisa Scanlon, and I am so glad that you're here with me today. Just a little reminder here, guys, that we are discussing mental health in this episode, so we may touch on things like suicide or self-harm, which may be a trigger for you. As always, I'll pop resources in the show notes or know that you can call Lifeline 24-7 on 13 11 14. Hey guys and welcome back to High Tide Low Tide. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am very excited for today's episode. You guys are in for a treat. Today in my kitchen I have the lovely Matt Newlands joining me. So welcome Matt.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much for coming around on a Tuesday after work (laughs) to join me. (laughs) So let's get straight into the episode. Would you like to just give us a bit of an introduction? Yeah, I can do that. To who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah, I can do that. Uh, So it's probably important for me to start with saying that I'm a former police officer from South Australia, did 10 years in service. Um, I got out of service in quite dramatic circumstances, which we'll likely touch on in today's episode. Now, moving forward from my time in the police and challenges that I had with my own mental health, uh, I work predominantly with military and emergency services personnel in the mental health sector, um, but also more broadly in community roles as well around, um, I guess, just building communities of good people around people who are navigating their own challenges um, and that's the, that's the focus. So I've got a stack of different roles with a number of different organisations. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, the, the overarching thing to say would be I'm now very passionate about supporting people in their mental health.
0: Absolutely. And um, as always, we had a bit of a conversation before we started recording and that's just oozes out of you, like mm. the passion that you have for this topic. And, and that's why I'm even more excited to delve into this with you. So in 2015, you were given a diagnosis. Mm. What was that?
1: Yeah. So beginning of 2015, I was mm-hmm. diagnosed with severe to extreme post-traumatic stress and depression. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was sort of following impacts of, of my role in the police and a, and a couple of sort of critical incidents that occurred.
0: Yeah. And I did was doing a little bit of research before you joined me and um, feel free to um, correct me if it's sure. wrong. Um, I'll put the links in the show notes. So I've got something to back me up here, <laughs> yeah. but I believe it's said that 10% of um, emergency service employees have probable PTSD compared to a 4% of the general population. Mm. So when we talk about like, mental health diagnoses, Mm. when we then apply those numbers and the statistics to people who are first responders, they do increase quite a bit, right?
1: Yeah, they do. And I think um, Beyond Blue actually did some really fantastic research that was quite innovative um, at the time and and certainly is something that many organisations draw on now. Uh, Around, they they surveyed just over 20,000 um, paid and volunteer emergency service personnel around Australia and looked at a stack of things you know, around their mental health and mental wellbeing. And some of the critical findings that came out were very much in line with the statistics you say, yeah. um, two and a half times more likely than the yeah, average Australian to be diagnosed with a mental health issue, three times as likely to have a plan for suicide um, than the average Australian as well. There's still some, I guess, challenging conversation around the numbers of those that might die by suicide, purely just from a reporting point of view, Um, often occupation of the person who dies by suicide is not necessarily one of the key focal areas of an investigation or or is something that's considered. Um, And then we also have to consider those that, um, you know, potentially have challenges or mental health challenges later on post-service as well. So Mm -hmm. then trying to understand, well, is that as a result of their service? Was there other circumstances at play? Was it a combination of, of all of those things? So mm-hmm. the reporting can get quite challenging, mm-hmm. but certainly um, from that higher level numbers, yeah, we, we 100% we know that um, the emergency service or first responder community as well as the military community are mm-hmm. certainly more at risk of developing mental health issues and certainly more at risk of, of contemplating suicide.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, I've seen more and more, I guess, reports coming out or different articles being written about it. And so I think it's it's great that there's a bit of a light being shone mm. on that so that we can then look at, you know, what are the steps that can be put in place so that we can start supporting people who are mm. in those industries in a better way.
1: Absolutely. And I, th- I think um, at the moment people would probably be aware that there is the Royal Commission into, like, suicide within the military Veterans. community. yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's fantastic. And I think mm-hmm. the best way that we can start addressing some of those, those challenges, even just like those that are navigating mental health challenges, is starting with the community itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes that can be a bit that's overlooked in the past is... Mm-hmm. Um, bit more of a we'll tell them what they need as opposed to let's ask them what they need and then Mm. see if we can ensure that they've got the resources and they're in that environment that is then going to be healthier than maybe Mm -hmm. existing so yeah it's a good it's certainly a good start is starting to unpack the problem
0: yeah definitely we have got to know each other yeah through LinkedIn. Yeah,
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. You've
0: got to love these things, which I think is just, you know, a really nice um, connection to have made, Mm -hmm. and I'm very grateful that you reached out to me to have a bit of a conversation, so thank you. Oh, you're welcome. How are you doing today, personally?
1: Um, Yeah, uh, doing actually really quite good. A lot Mm -hmm. of the, uh, we spoke before, obviously, Mm -hmm. about just the day-to-day stuff that comes up that can... Yeah. Um, I often get caught up in the in the weeds, so to speak, each day and you know, get a little bit frustrated just by running out of time in the day. But
2: mm.
1: I'm also then very conscious of what it is that I get to do with my time each day. Um and like I said before, I'm very passionate about this. I live and breathe um this work. So it's um yeah, I'm very fortunate. So I'm doing good. I'm doing really good.
0: I'm very glad. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. How are you doing?
0: Oh, I don't <laughs> think anyone's ever asked me that it's before. To know. <laughs> Thank you. Um I am tired mm. in general at the moment. I was saying to my um, one of my friends earlier today that I'm getting enough sleep but I'm just really tired at the moment and I don't know how I'm going to catch up on that mm. tiredness. Uh, in terms of mental health, um, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at the moment. Yeah. Probably a couple of weeks ago I wouldn't have said that. I had sure. a bit of a... Down a couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. but through doing the daily things, Mm -hmm. um, you know, those everyday tasks like getting, um, you know, out for a walk after, like, usually I try to go for a walk after I come home from work and getting out, um, even, you know, laying in the sun Mm. for half an hour just to, I guess, I feel like I'm a, a plant. Like yeah. I need to just have that that mm-hmm. sunlight on me for X amount of time per day to help out. So doing those things helped me get out of that. Yeah. And I would say, yeah, at the moment I'm in a pretty good place. So good. thank you. Good night. You're welcome. I'd I appreciate just, just you asking. watch the
1: rest thing because they obviously we know yes. that sleep is, is so closely connected. So, yes. Um, if
0: you would like look at my calendar that's on that table right there, mm-hmm. on Sunday you'll see in big block letters it mm-hmm. says rest.
2: Rest. Perfect. And it's
0: circled. Yeah. I wrote that in there like a couple of hours ago because I like I genuinely have to schedule rest for myself mm. because I am constantly like doing. Yeah. And and I love doing yeah. that. But yep. I have to remember myself to, a, to actually recharge.
1: <laughs> good, well, it's a good strategy probably for listeners to take yeah. on as well is actually scheduling in that rest time and not feeling often that associated guilt that can come with it. Yes. So, yeah, just make time for yourself. Yes. Do the things that you enjoy.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for asking. No, you're
2: welcome. <laughs> welcome.
0: So um, you mentioned that you were a police officer. Mm. Was that something that you had like always wanted to do, like when you were growing up?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I actually I think I've got a photograph. So I've got a photograph of when I was four years old when it was actually my fourth birthday and my dad's uh, close friend, he was in the job (laughs) and he came to my birthday party and brought the police car and he was in uniform. Um, yeah, and it was, it's just like that was kind of a cool experience and from what I'm told, because I mm-hmm. don't really remember being four, um, <laughs> it was like really from then that I started to say I wanted to be a cop and I don't think that that's unusual either for many people at that age or many young kids. They attach themselves to one of those roles, like you know, whether it's doctor, nurse, you know, police, fire, ambulance or military or something. Ballerina. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So Not you have quite the same. Similar, but yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think there was a, an attachment to that yeah. role already at that that time, and I think that um, looking at those roles in a bit more of like that hero status yeah. at that age, there was there were a lot of reasons for that. But what I did find during my schooling, and then certainly as I went into high school, I still I still had that um, interest and passion to to join,
0: yeah. uh, and
1: geared my schooling around the career as well. So um, it was very much a focus of mine and then joined the academy at 20 years old. So
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, I was young. So was almost essentially yeah. straight out of school, so yeah, a couple of years yeah. out of school. Yep. Yeah. I went
1: interstate for a bit, um, I just did hospitality, yep. um, which is pretty common. Uh, I knew that it was important for me to get like as much life experience as a, t- as a 20-year-old mm-hmm. can yeah. um, and, and that's, that can be challenging. But, yeah, when I came, came back to Adelaide, uh, I thought I'd give it a shot, and the whole application process was relatively fast and um, yeah, I found myself at the police academy in two thousand and six and then turned twenty one that was I started in March and turned twenty one in at the end of April of that year, so mm-hmm. yeah young
0: yeah how did you find it once you got into it? Was it like everything you were hoping for in those early years?
1: Yep. Yeah. I, absolutely. I, in fact, I didn't miss a day at the academy. Um, I yeah. actually injured my knee um, during one of the exercises that we, that we did. And I still didn't, like, I still just kept rocking up. And um, it was an injury that I carried for a, a few years and then eventually had to get it um, worked on. It didn't sort of prevent me from doing anything significant. It didn't prevent me from um, like graduating and, and going mm-hmm. to my first postings. But um, yeah, loved it when every single, every single day, um, made good friends there good people
3: mm-hmm.
1: I think once I got out of the academy environment most I guess uh, you know coppers will probably say that once you're out of that environment then like reality sort of starts mm. to set in a little bit as well um and the I guess a lot of the the real learning happens it's, it's really critical to have a lot of the fundamental educational piece of course. Um, but a lot of that job naturally is learnt very much on the job so yeah and even then I still I loved it there was, mm-hmm. it was like. You know there were still times that I was scared or
3: mm-hmm. not
1: sure how things would play out and doubted my capabilities and especially as a twenty one year old going into circumstances where you're almost telling people how to live their life, but they might be twice as old as you um mm-hmm. you know that's yeah that that was challenging at times but um mm-hmm. yeah had again good people around me, good cops around me that I learned from mm-hmm. um had a really good time, yeah loved it
0: that's good. And so um, you work on a like a shift basis, mm. right? So you do like earlies or yep. lates or yep. is that yep. how you... Yeah, so
1: there's like most places will have anywhere from like a, a five to six or seven week rotating roster. Yep. Um, so, yeah, there's night shifts, day shifts, afternoon shifts. There's a mm-hmm. mixture of all of that sort of yep. thrown in the mix. But it's a set, usually a set roster for that, that period, especially if your general duties are on patrols. Um, some of the other areas bit more of the specialist areas or whatever might have a a revised roster Mm -hmm. um I spent some time working uh, on a uniform tactical team which was very much just a proactive team looking at um you know pubs and hotels and low-level bikies and drugs and that sort of stuff so Mm -hmm. naturally those shifts were more geared towards evenings and weekends yeah um that's generally when those places are busy it's no point Going to a pub at, you know, ten o'clock on a Tuesday morning and expecting <laughs> there to be any issues to be yeah. um worked on. So um but yeah, generally speaking it's a rotating shift. Mm-hmm. But and then there's overtime and changes yeah. and yeah, resourcing needs that come into play too.
0: Yeah. And did you get um moved into different areas like mm. um sub- suburb wise
1: yeah so when I first graduated I went to Sturt uh, yeah. which at that time had a had a like relatively condensed population as well for that that location mm-hmm. and that was good very much a metropolitan based area for those that are familiar with it support from other areas as well so you've got neighboring um, stations that are that have coppers out there doing stuff as well um, but I did six months at Sturt then we did two years up in Port, Port Augusta.
0: Oh, okay, so, so you went yeah. regional.
1: Yeah. yeah, there was two from my course that had to go. Um, yeah. And, yeah, myself and one other, we uh, we signed the bit of paper that said you could send us wherever, and so we got sent up to Port Augusta. Uh, and so that was a little bit more of an interesting environment um, for a number of reasons, not yeah. as many... Uh, resources available up there different demographic within the community as well that caused a very steep learning curve mm-hmm. um but I still enjoyed that too
0: yeah and um, for anyone who's not from SA Port Augusta is how far out of Adelaide
1: it's probably about three three and a half hours like yeah sort of north um it's a bit of a I guess, a, a hub if you're going to be heading west or heading up through mm-hmm. the centre as well. Port Augusta is kind of like the thoroughfare there.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think the population at the time was probably about 12,000 or so. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what it is now. Um, but there's also a, like an Aboriginal uh, community that sits on the fringe mm-hmm. um, of Port Augusta too. So, um, yeah, it was a really great place to work. And, again, yeah. like I said, a very steep learning curve.
0: Yeah. So what kind of um, like were the main stresses that you encountered in this job Um not just regionally, mm. like in the job in mm. general
1: I think that's a that is a really good question because mm-hmm. I think for a lot of a lot of people in service as well, but certainly for a lot in the community, you kind of expect that the major impacts for those that are in service is the constant exposure to traumatic events, mm-hmm. um being involved in them or, or being um, in a position where you have to deal with people who have been involved in them and, and that vicarious trauma mm-hmm. but I think um the the stressor of like just being in that environment and we 're talking then about the shifts that you have to work, the environments that you have to work in, um, some of the organisational challenges as well that can come as well. Like it's such a complex layers of stress that we're very good at normalising. And for many listeners, they might be going, well, you know that, you've signed up for that. Um, it's like that is, that is true, but it doesn't necessarily soften the impact. No. So I think when you, when you start young, and certainly in my case started a, at a quite a young age and where I can prioritise my career, Mm-hmm. It's easy than or easier to spend time on weekends away from like family events or or friend events. Um miss a lot of birthday parties, Christmases, weddings, engagement parties, like all that stuff you're often absent for yeah. um but then also working like I said, just in really challenging environments, um you know whether it's standing on a cordon at three in the morning and it's raining, and you know you need to go to the toilet and you need food, but you can't you can't do either of those things because it's really important that you do your job and you stand there for hours longer yeah um again, like it's not necessarily. Um, hard and people don't bother complaining about it but it's it does have an impact over time is just that chronic stress so some yeah. of the um, some of the biggest challenges can just be some of the organizational mm-hmm. you know environmental challenges as well just mm-hmm. having to change shifts or have annual leave cancelled and you know depends on what the community COVID was a big thing that impacted the service um, yeah. community in a big way because resources had to be allocated into different roles mm-hmm. so yes yeah, sometimes some of the hardest jobs Standing around doing nothing, um, yeah. you'd almost you know wish for some of the more exciting parts of the job instead. Yeah, yeah. So it's a good question.
0: That's very interesting because mm-hmm. I think you're right, and that a lot of people would think that it is those, you know, because and that's what we see on TV, yeah. right? Is we see these ambulance shows or you know um, RBT or yeah. these kind of television shows, and they show the the big things that yeah. happen, and and obviously that does play a, mm-hmm. a, a huge role on what affects a first responder. Mm-hmm. But it is those those everyday um, like low level stress, but con- consistent.
1: Yeah. You know, over a long period of time. Yeah. 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 And I think if you were, the, you know, some of the um, ambos, for example, that I've spoken to, mm-hmm. some of some of their biggest challenges are being stuck in an ambulance, say at a hospital or on mm-hmm. a ramp, and they're hearing, and they're hearing like they're having other jobs that they know that they can help in. Yeah, they have a skill set they have a capability and and cops are doing the same maybe they're working in disaster relief or COVID response in a hotel and they're hearing other things that are going on outside and they have the capability of doing something because they're trained to do that that's what they signed up to do mm. but they're not in a position to be able to help and that can often play at that core value of being of service and often the main reason why they signed up in the first place
2: mm-hmm.
1: that can be some of the biggest stress or in their mm. life is is just not being able to to get involved and to yeah. help people.
0: That's very interesting, mm. definitely, and especially considering um, a lot if you are from Adelaide, you know, in the media in the last, you know, I don't even know, maybe 18 months we've been mm. hearing a lot about like the ramping yeah. with um, ambulances at the hospital and and just hearing you explain that, like I can only imagine what it would feel like for those people yeah. who are waiting to offload um, patients at the hospital mm. and hearing those jobs come in. So definitely, you know... makes you think of it from a a different perspective it's not just the patient you've also got the other people who are involved as well i think there's a great
1: sense of responsibility that most people in service have to the community they know that their role is 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 vitally important they don't want to be waiting 45 minutes to get to a job especially if someone is in immediate danger or they need Mm -hmm. um like immediate support and intervention they know that. They, mm-hmm. they, If given the opportunity, they would be the first one there mm-hmm. um, and, and are very keen and ready to rush in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's some of the other challenges, even if it's just simple as resourcing, that prevents them from doing that well. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they're also the ones that cop the brunt of it too when they rock up 30 minutes late, you know, to what maybe mm. a, someone has called the cops and they expect them to be there within minutes. And then, you know, if they are rocking up 10, 15, 20, 30 mm-hmm. minutes later, You know, then that they are the ones that cop the brunt of that and that can often be far worse is just feeling that sense of responsibility and constantly letting people down. Yeah. Um, than if they were to get there and be able to then be right in the thick of things at the time. So Yeah. Yeah, it's a challenging environment.
0: Yeah. And I think like just going off of that, I just think, you know, if anyone is listening and and they ever do find themselves in Mm. that situation to, you know, now think back to this story and maybe just take a moment to know that those people would have been there sooner if they could have been and just to be kind to people who are there to Mm. help. Mm. Um, Sometimes I think we do get carried away at times and we forget that other people are just other people. Yeah. And they're doing the best that they can with the circumstances that yeah. they have in front of
1: them. Well, and I think their expectations are reasonable. Mm. It's a reasonable expect, expectation if it, someone was having chest pain that you can call an ambulance and one yeah. turns up in a few minutes. And so it makes sense for people to be frustrated, upset, um, you know, because the impacts, the risks that we're talking about are very high, they're very significant. Yeah. Um, if you're calling the police, it's not usually because you're having a good time and you just want to <laughs> no. let us know. Like it's usually yeah. something bad is happening um, and you want some support. You mm-hmm. know, things have escalated to a point where you need to restore Order. Um, I can promise you the people that rock up wish they could have been there earlier. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah, often just one of those things that they just unfortunately have to fall in line. And the anger and frustration you're feeling might be better directed at, you know, other parts of the system, so to speak, than those that turn up.
0: Yeah, that's well said. Yeah. So how long were you a police officer?
1: Yeah, so I was in uh, from 2006 until 2016. So yeah. roughly 10 years, but the last probably... Ten months or so of my career was spent um, yeah in a very interesting environment. I was off work for a period of time through that before yeah, um, yeah it all came to an end so yeah.
0: yeah so if we were to sort of i guess um, start looking at you know your mental health mm. journey, if you were to sort of think back, um, where would the i guess the, where would this all sort of have started for you, or is there an event or something you can think of yep. that triggered it
1: yeah. Um, Yeah, there was. So I think, um, so before probably the uh, the end of 2013, I I think it's even post that um, period of time, and I'll get to a particular incident in a moment, but I think it's fair to say that my mental health literacy, my own understanding of my own mental health was very poor Mm -hmm. Um, during this time. I responded to many mental health jobs and mental Mm -hmm. health incidents um, but very much had probably like a a very judgmental approach to that and thought that it it fit a certain type of person and that person wasn't me. Um, So I think when I um, found in 2013... Um, It was September, uh, a friend and a colleague, he was off duty, I was on duty, uh, he took his life and being in a position then where I responded to that particular job was, yeah, naturally pretty challenging. And we we have like competing needs then and competing roles in that moment. One, I was a a friend of his, but um, in that moment, it was really important to me to be a friend to those that had attended the scene as well. There was mm-hmm. obviously quite a close group of people. Um, but also, I was a police officer, and I had mm. a responsibility to, for certain things to, to go a certain way. Mm-hmm. So I think having those, that competition of roles caused quite, quite a significant conflict, like inside me, and there's expectations that I have to do certain things. Right. And naturally, like for the for the completion of that whole um, incident, it's really important for things to follow procedure and mm-hmm. for steps to be carried out. So that had to become a primary focus of mine. Um, it was also really important to me as well after that was to make sure that the other people that were impacted, and I think that this is very common, like everybody that was involved uh, in that night and um, those that were on the, the fringe of that, um, I think they all felt a similar way of trying to support each other better and certainly putting f- putting other people before ourselves that's that's mm-hmm. what I guess being of service is yeah. um, but it does come with like bit of a bit of a risk um, yeah. so not really knowing how best to deal with with that grief and that loss um, yeah. I just kind of doubled down on what I did know and that was um, policing so wow. um, it was one of those things that I just invested more energy more time back into the job mm-hmm. You know, my my mate was like he was he was a fantastic guy and really good copper. Like so, he yeah. I think that was again one of those things of like, well, if this is how this plays out, is that how it plays out for me as well? Um, and that that those thought processes probably didn't really come for some time afterwards. But yeah, um, I think in that first instance it was very much just focus on work focus on my team focus on the people around to make sure yeah. that they've all got what they need but everybody was doing the same thing so yeah very much like this well others were closer others knew him more than mm. than I did um and so it was like I need to make sure that I'm
0: everyone yeah everyone was else is okay. looked after yeah. yeah
1: and we were all doing that so it wasn't it's not like you know yeah, me the coming through and trying to save the day. Not at all. Everybody was, I think, in that in the same, same mindset. Boat, yeah. Yeah.
0: Can I ask? Did you know prior to arriving at the job that it was mm. your f- friend and colleague that you were going yeah. to?
1: Yeah, I had a phone call from. So at the time, I was um, a supervisor for a, like a uniform. Tactical team, which, yeah. I get like we described before. And so, our role was really to pro- provide additional support to the general duty patrols as well. Okay. So, um, a mate of mine who was the like the acting sergeant on duty that night as well, he had phoned me and said you know, there'd been a job.
0: And explained.
1: Yeah, and so I'd asked for one of like the crews that I was working with to go. He had already sent one of his crews as well. I, I went down there too. Others started to get wind of like there was something going on at his house. We didn't necessarily know what we were going into, but we right. n- knew that it was it was not going to be good just by the nature of what was going on. Yeah. So. How
0: did you manage, I guess, balancing the feelings that you must have had inside mm. because it's one thing to attend a job for someone you don't know. Yeah. It's another thing to attend, I guess, knowing the, the person's house that you're going yeah. to. How did you balance that inside?
1: Um, I don't think I did, yeah. <laughs> like that, which I think caused a lot of the problem. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it was just going with what? the environment was was throwing at me at the yeah. time and again for those that have been in service you get conditioned to to lean into the discomfort it's you know there's been many jobs where I've thought this might not go so well for me but that's what I've signed up for so that's kind of my role here yeah um, and you know when you think of the fight flight freeze response
2: mm-hmm.
1: we are trained like to disregard like to stop and do nothing is not really imp- an option, an option, and neither is to run away. So yeah. all we do is constantly go straight in, um, and and that's for a lot of service professions and yep. probably other industries as well. But so you don't really have a choice. You get used to f- like feeling a certain thing, but then also get very used to just pushing all emotions aside and suppressing them because emotions yeah. get in the way of us doing our job well.
0: Yeah. Um, so, so just it's, doing just what feel you nothing need to do yep. at that time hundred
1: percent. So yeah. um, and my wife will be able to tell um, stories of when. Like there's been other big incidents where she's phoned me and I and she's not known that I've been involved in a particular job. Yeah. Um. And she'll say something like, you know, how is your shift going? I was like, don't talk to me about it. Um. And she and she'd be able to say, I can tell in your voice that there's you've just not there. Yeah. Um, so we we focus on the task at hand. Yeah. That's, that's what we're trained to do. So yeah. I think just doing that. The challenge is trying to turn that back on again um, mm-hmm. when you're out of that environment, but you've got mm-hmm. this like. All of this stuff that's been built up and is now sitting there, ready to to come forth, that mm-hmm. feels like really rubbish as well. So, again, yeah. if if every time I feel something, it's bad, it's probably easier to feel nothing. So we just train ourselves to switch off emotionally and just don't. Then you're not there for anything. You're just yeah. not available, not for the good stuff, not for the
3: mm-hmm. like
1: the bad stuff either. Um, and I think he, during that period of time afterwards. There's a handful of times where I can think back where I was in an environment um, where I, I kind of thought that I should feel something, like I should feel happy or excited,
3: mm-hmm. um,
1: pleased to be at an event and still was like this just isn't doing anything. Like I don't know why yeah. like everyone's laughing or crying and it just doesn't make sense because I had just lost my ability to um, feel. Wow. Yeah. 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 So and, and so that, do you, you that's think that's a that- common thing.
0: Progressively happened over time.
1: I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think it's just through exposure of, yeah. of like constant environments like that. You know, mm-hmm. think about, um, you know, early in career going to like pick any job for that matter. Um, constant exposure to, to these things. It's easy mm-hmm. for for someone to like, and um, someone turning up with a great sense of empathy for a, a family member who has just lost a loved one. Mm but if that person it's it's a, it could be easy for people to go well i have a a father or a grandfather that's the same age as that man who's who's died you know from a heart attack mm-hmm. you know that's life that's what happens but then Again, like it's that just a real little thing that that's not useful, push that to one side.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, if
1: I rock up to a, to a young child, um, you know, who might be in the back of an ambulance and, you know, in a whole world of hurt for whatever reason,
3: mm-hmm. I
1: might have a young child and, and, mm-hmm. and so it's not useful for me to connect in with that. I need to be here, I need to be present, I need yeah. to do things that are going to make everybody else's life a lot easier here mm-hmm. or um, prepare for the worst. Yeah, And so it's then just parking like all of those emotions and so then when they pop up, which is usually, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. um, you know, when the mind is starting to settle, yeah. it's then putting like for me it was then just a lot of unhealthy coping strategies around how to like mm-hmm. push those further down or push them to the side. But they were all just short-term um, yeah. solutions and weren't, they, they came with their own challenges as well.
0: Yeah. So is that what started to happen for mm. you post this event happening mm. and losing your friend and colleague? Yeah.
2: Um,
0: how did that look? Like what did you start to do? What signs and symptoms did mm. you have moving on from that?
1: Yeah, so it, it, going back to your point before about like how quickly it happens or yeah. slowly it happens, I guess it depends. Um, but it was really from September 2013 to January 2015. So we're only talking... Um, you know, a relatively short period of time, mm-hmm. almost, like I guess, 15 months or so. Yeah. Um, for that was when I then went to the doctor and because uh, I, I was starting to have what I believe to be unreasonable emotional responses to situations that were occurring. And I'll, I'll touch on that in a moment. But um, on reflection, looking back, say, through the end of, um, 13 and say through 14, mm-hmm. um, a lot of it was the sleep was a big one that was becoming significantly disrupted. Um, I was then relying on, again, unhealthy strategies to to like, I guess, force that to be a, no longer an issue. And I'm and, yeah. and about I was relying heavily on alcohol. Yeah. So alcohol would help get me to sleep. Um, but mm-hmm. for most people, I think we're pretty well versed in that doesn't allow for a very restful sleep.
2: Yeah.
1: So I was only getting probably two to three hours of broken sleep a night. Um, wow. Yeah, which is obviously then relying on caffeine through the, to day, through to, the day to keep propped yeah. up. So um, having that cycle of just constantly looking for other substances to just get through the day mm-hmm. and then... Constantly pushing the emotion to one side, but we've then got you constantly going back into a similar environment where there's further exposure to um, potentially traumatic events, but certainly stressful environments. It's just this compounding effect yeah. of constantly having to go back into step back into the arena without necessarily having the rest or anything around you. So yeah yeah so it was I think it was only like really on reflection I started to go this I could see where these things were happening. um I started to withdraw and isolate myself probably mm-hmm. in the second half more of fourteen mm-hmm. um, I was again f- focusing on work, work became a real real because I felt in control when I was at work and yeah. when I was out of work, I felt like my life was slipping through my fingers so okay. um so I would go looking for you know opportunities for overtime, changing shifts, um yeah, and I was looking for more. More and more intense situations as well was another probably red flag that I look back on um, So through 2015 and when I started to realise that things weren't well. I still was, like, really shit at knowing what was going on for me but um, I know that I started to, like, behave in ways which were then trying to invoke an emotional response. And mostly, like, when you're in the police, fear is an easy thing to tap into. You only have to Mm -hmm. go to a pub with a few people fighting and get involved with, um, you yeah. know, with limited resources available to you, um, and you know, certainly I'm I'm not as good as a lot of the cops out there with their skills, so um, mm-hmm. that would invoke a fear response. And and sometimes that was the drug itself was just to find there was a sense of yeah. feeling something rush of
0: adrenaline absolutely that you would get in that yep. situation I imagine
1: absolutely. So that again is like another that's pretty common. Like it's taking yeah. significant risk taking behavior, um, and again like I said being in the police you're in an environment environment that that is you know you're exposed to those opportunities so yeah
0: Mm. and so obviously these like unbeknownst to you at the time were different coping mechanisms that you put into place Mm -hmm. unconsciously or consciously either way did anyone start to notice a change in you
1: I think uh yes and no I think Mm -hmm. So there was a couple of people that were close to me. Obviously, my, my yeah. wife was close to me. She yeah. certainly saw a lot of those changes at, at home. Um, I think the perfect storm kind of arose when I found that I was being drawn to um, particular roles that would allow for more opportunities to do, um, I guess, a bit more of the um, adrenaline fueled jobs. Yeah. Uh, and so I, at the beginning of 2015, I actually started a different role was with the state tactical response group. Um, which for listeners is in no way star group is probably what they might be thinking. It's just mm-hmm. more of a, um, a, a generalised public order um, role it was sort of at the time, but um, also with a saturation style policing. So we're often allowed to you know police the, S- the CBD, for example, okay. would help with larger scale incidents as well as just additional resources. It was very much like a support role for um, the state generally. Okay. Um, and that was, But it, what it did do, though, is it, it didn't give us... Um, it allowed us to explore without having boundaries of like you know certain roads we 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 could go where we liked and we could go looking for the people that we wanted to go looking for and mm. and most of the guys that were down there were very keen motivated good good coppers that mm-hmm. um wanted to keep bad people like locked away so yeah. um, it meant the team that I was on were were highly motivated and you know look and that was exactly what I wanted was to mm. go catch bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it allowed for that. But what it did mean is that I was then around a new group of people,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, which might not necessarily have known what like me healthy looked like Yeah. as, and, but then the, also the other challenge with that is I was very much wearing a mask to work and I was showing mm-hmm. up as having like everything together and I didn't really give anybody an opportunity to, to see maybe what was going on. Yeah. Um. On reflection, there was a, a mate of mine that he did say um, after one particular job, I went back down Christie's way and he said to me like months and months later, he said, I remember that job. And he said, you were different. And I was like, oh, okay, how so? He's like, well, you just weren't really there. Like it just didn't, you just weren't what I would, I don't remember you being like that, but I'd been away from Christie's for probably three or four months at that stage. Yeah, and it wasn't necessarily enough for him to raise anything with me, Mm -hmm. but um, he's yeah certainly on reflection he he said yeah I remember that job and it was you were just different Um, okay so I think some people probably saw stuff and others that I didn't give them an opportunity to see it
0: and often these things happen so gradually Mm -hmm. and over time that it is hard for people to identify and pick them up so you know. I never would want someone to listen and think, "Oh, um, why didn't I pick something yeah. up?" Or like, there's never a blame on on other people not. because not only can it happen so gradually, we're also so good at hiding it. Yeah, you know, often people who are going through something, we we don't want other people to know.
2: Absolutely,
1: and especially those that we love the most. Yeah, because we don't either want them to worry about us or we don't want to feel as though we're a burden.
2: Correct. to them either. We want yeah. we want
1: them to think that everything's okay and that they don't have to worry. So mm-hmm. um yeah, certainly is that's a really important message is um because mm-hmm. that's such a hard thing when you when someone you know or love goes through a, a real difficult time and they you might have felt like you missed it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or or worse still, they they end up taking their life. It's it's quick for our brains to then go. Well, how could I have done things different or better? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that's not usually usually a helpful question um, mm-hmm. because you know that's well. What can I do now? And and mm-hmm. that can be really challenging if we've lost the person. So yeah, yeah.
0: So when did you come to have a realization that mm. maybe something was wrong?
1: <laughs> yeah, there was probably two things that come to mind. But I've, I was only just talking to um, my wife about it. Mm -hmm. probably a few weeks ago because I think my timings are a little bit out and I think like my brain's not real good during the beginning of end of 14 and and certainly through 15 was like awful experience. But Mm -hmm. um, I recall there being, I think I touched on it before, having an unreasonable emotional response is is what I thought it was. Um, I missed my daughter's kindy art expo thing that they had Mm -hmm. and I remember uh, I was meant to be there early in the morning. I'd had a shift that went late into like a bit of overtime I, you know, got to bed at whatever time, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and I remember having to send an email to the teacher because I was meant to be helping um, yeah. at like 8 o'clock that morning at the kindy and couldn't. And then when I woke up a little bit later, like mid-morning, I remember being on the phone to my wife and just, you know, she was at the kindy thing yeah. um, and then like breaking down in tears. And I was like, this feels un- like an unreasonable response to... Um, and I often joke about the fact for those that have been to kindy art expos, <laughs> it probably doesn't warrant that level of <laughs> sadness. Um, yeah. But it was something that I felt was important at the time. And, yeah. um, and a- again, something got in the way and I, I just clearly wasn't handling things very well. Um, there was another incident as well, though, where my daughter, she would have been, say, about four at the time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where she... Um, indicated to me that she was scared of me. We'd, and I, I don't even remember like what it was. It was, you know, asking her to go to a room or pick up a toy or whatever it might be. And um, and she went to my wife in tears and saying that she was scared. And now I've never been like physically or verbally loud or abusive at home. It was, um, I think for those that know, maybe cops and, and certainly in the military, you have a, you get trained and conditioned a way to, to talk and communicate, which can be quite confronting, mm-hmm. very direct, very abrupt and
0: authoritative.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And there's often then like the, the command can be loaded with a perceived consequence. If you don't do what I say, there's going to be a consequence. And mm-hmm. that is super useful. Like in service, that is really useful because if it's two in the morning and mm. I've got you out of a car and I need you to get your hands out of your pockets, like, I don't have time to discuss this, it's do it or we'll we'll take steps to make Mm -hmm. sure that everybody's safe Um, but not conducive to a healthy relationship with your four-year-old daughter. So, um, And I think one of the red flags there for me was that I remember that experience but then not feeling anything you know, and at a time where I, I probably should have been like gutted that yeah. she thought that she couldn't come to me or didn't find me safe um, and I was still just emotionally numb. So mm-hmm. it was around that time that um, I had contacted a, a doctor and mm-hmm. went and met with the the GP. Um, mm-hmm. This was outside of, um, say, knowledge because I was worried about what it would do for my career.
0: And I think that's common as hugely well, Hugely right? common. Yeah. Hugely
1: common. There's a lot of fear around that. Um mm-hmm. And if I digress just for a moment, mm-hmm. it's um, I think a lot of that comes back to the identity piece is that at right. you know at thirty years old, um, you know I'd been ten years in the police and wanting to be in the job since I was four, um, policing was who I was, mm. so when I graduated and was given my number given my badge like that, they gave me my identity
3: mm-hmm.
1: so to, to think about something that might risk that you know was there very much a fear of they'll take the gun they'll take. You know, my, my role and responsibility, and then who am I if I'm not a cop? Um, yeah. Even if it's for a short period of time, like it's, I wasn't prepared to, um, to run that risk. So, yeah, um, that is super common. Like in all of the work that I do with military and emergency services members who are navigating challenges, I'd say probably 99% comes back to like the identity challenge, mm. um, is, is involved in that mixture of stuff there at some point um so that was very much a, a challenge for me, so I went to a doctor um, He asked me a few questions. he asked me questions about you know had I been to war and had I been exposed mm-hmm. to natural disasters and motor vehicle accidents and all this sort of stuff it's a very generalized six six questions that most people yeah. would get asked for listeners have probably asked been asked them themselves <laughs> um, and uh, I think I answered five out of six and mm-hmm. I was like, you know, beat your test. Like, yeah, I didn't get six out of six. So I'm fine. Um, and <laughs> he kind of he kind of indicated to me that some people don't tick one. You know, they they and you've ticked five. Yeah. I um, said, so, well, I've never been to war, and I, and I think that's where I really connected post traumatic stress. Yeah. Uh, but when I went to see the psychologist off that referral. Uh, he challenged that as well. He said, well, I think, you know, you're, you're probably depending on how you frame what your war is, but mine might say you go every day um, into that environment that is that shows you danger all of the time. Absolutely. Um, because we're conditioned to look for it because, it, yeah. you know, especially when you're on shift. So I didn't really, that's around the time that I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and depression also coincided with me getting the new job. Mm -hmm. So, again, there's absolutely no way I was going to say anything to the police about this new bit in my life. I just Mm -hmm. thought, well, if I just pretend like that didn't happen, um, maybe I'll just get better. Okay. (laughs) I'll just wait and think, you know, really (laughs) foolish way of approaching things. Um, And especially for someone, I guess, you know, service guys and girls are... You know, pragmatic, solution-focused people like they—they mm. they find problems, they work through the problem, and they—they they work find a solution. But it seems like when it comes to mental health, <laughs> again, in, in in my experience, it's not so readily available. Is that intent? It's like, oh, you know, I want to stay very clear from anything to do with that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. So yeah, when the psychologist was very poor engagement on my behalf, he spent the first couple of sessions trying to show me that my brain just wasn't operating the way that it that might be more useful um okay but his language was really important he said that i had symptoms of post-traumatic stress and depression
0: mm-hmm. and
1: the reason why that was important to me is that he didn't label me didn't put me in a box okay it didn't necessarily um you know tick this box in my head that was like this just secures your future in a certain direction he said symptoms and i was like, well. On reflection now, I think back on that and that was actually really useful language because I was Mm -hmm. like, well, if I can have symptoms of lots of things and I can still live a Mm -hmm. meaningful and purposeful life, like I think it's fair to say I've probably still got symptoms of PTSD and depression now Mm -hmm. but they're symptoms and so if I can be aware of them Mm -hmm. and I can see the challenges that they show me on a day-to-day and then I can look at finding solutions around that, Mm -hmm. um, then I can still go and do lots of things and still live a life of meaning and purpose and still show up each day. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was like really useful language for me. At the the time, I just didn't really pick it at the time though.
0: Yeah, and that's really interesting. And this is just like another, I guess, way of looking at it in that there's no one... One size fits all solution because where you're saying it was really helpful that you weren't labeled Mm. to someone else being told you have X Mm -hmm. or you have Y could have the, the same effect. Because then they're like, okay, I now have a diagnosis, I know, and this is what I can focus on. So I just found that really interesting.
1: Yeah. And it's something that we name, certainly in the group work that I do when we get Mm -hmm. like say 10 military emergency service guys like in the room together and we're working through one of the workshops, um, say that right from the word go. So like I'll I'll talk about my experience being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and depression and I'll tell you that that language or that label is not useful for me. But I'm going to respect that it may be really useful for you because it's now an explanation for the way you're showing up day to day. And by knowing that information and by maybe having that diagnosis or having that label opens up resources or support for you. Mm-hmm. or could just give you the bit to say, okay, I know now what I can do with that. I can start exploring how to work through that issue. Yes. So we have to very much be mindful of, for some, it's super useful. For others, it can be really quite um, debilitating just by being called that, named that, yeah. um, and everything in between. So very unique
0: Yeah, very approach. interesting. And I've, I've actually not heard anyone explain it the way mm. that you just did, so that was very helpful <laughs> to me as well, so I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. So obviously you started to get a little bit of um, help yep. in that space. I guess before we go too far in that direction, mm-hmm. where I guess like if you were to pinpoint like a lowest point mm. for you, had that occurred yet?
1: No, no, hadn't yet. So the nineteenth of May, um, two thousand and fifteen, was like the lowest low point. Um, mm-hmm. I had continued to withdraw from from those that I loved and cared about, especially at home. Yeah. Started to um, really make life hard for myself at home. Mm-hmm. Gave um, my wife plenty of reasons to get rid of me. Mm-hmm. And the 19th of May was um, that was the f- like the first time that, I, like that night was the first time that I decided to take my life. Um, I knew how I'd do it. I knew like, I had the means to do it. Obviously mm-hmm. my, my role allowed for that. Um but it was one of those things I actually found myself i'd, I'd left home I'd, um, I'd gone down to Seacliff uh, mm-hmm. Beach uh, and just found myself on the phone to, on the phone to my mum, actually just talking through stuff with her uh, and I think she picked like where it was going. She was in, living in Sydney at the time, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and she, she knew what was what I was planning, but um, and in fact, at one point she said, "I know what you're planning, and i can't get there to stop you oh. we, we hadn't actually said the words but you know she's yeah she's a smart lady she's a nurse herself actually and I think yeah. that's where again it can come back to conversations I've had with with my mom I'm sure she won't she'll probably listen and won't mommy sharing yeah. um um but she has said as well like she experienced that some of the stuff that you spoke before about just mm-hmm. missing it or not knowing or not necessarily knowing how best to help and support like yeah you know she is a she is of a service personnel herself like service is a, is a key component mm-hmm. to her life and is one of her core values um and then certainly to have that relationship you know as being mother of of a son who was just in so much pain yeah. um and could only see like the only option at that that moment was to was to go yeah. um, and go for good yeah and that would have been really hard
0: of, yeah I can yeah. only imagine had there been a lead up to that day where you had had it in your mind that 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 was likely an option or did it just get to that day and that was there was yeah. not going to be any no good,
1: good question because i think some i think this is how like we have to, we have to be having conversations yeah. like this it's, it's so so important um so i think both would be the the way i'd answer that i mm-hmm. i do remember there was one particular night in the lead up it would have probably been a few weeks out that i had noticed that i was starting to observe that my wife and daughter had a relationship that i didn't have mm-hmm. um and that that's perfectly acceptable um and then throw on the extra complexities of working shift work and constantly being away like my wife became very good at basically being a single mum most of the time
3: Mm -hmm.
1: um and so I I think what that did though was it was showing me like my my brain that confirmation bias I was telling myself a story and my brain was finding evidence um where it was saying you're not needed here you're not required um, circumstances of that, like that particular day had then resulted. I, I di- didn't feel like I had any other option. Um, and this is when I'm talking about suicide in other forums as well. I often talk about this to say, like, getting to that point, more often than not, is just a lack of options. There's there's a lot of people that I've spoken to that have got to the point where they've either attempted to take their life, um, or they've thought about taking their life. And the thing that has potentially stopped them, other than maybe immediate intervention, has then been this reintroduction of hope that maybe there's another alternative. Um, in fact, one person I spoke to, um, when he I had asked if he was, we know to talk directly about, you know, asking whether people are um, feeling as though they want to take their life. And this one person had said yes, but he, he didn't actually, when we started exploring that, he hadn't actually considered that he wouldn't be here after doing that, that yeah, there was no so. time to come back.
3: Mm-hmm. And I
1: was like, this is a really fascinating experience mm-hmm. that his, his you know, brain was telling him that this is an option, this is a solution to a problem, mm-hmm. that um, it, obviously it's a, you know, a long-term mm-hmm. consequence um, solution, but hadn't necessarily, um, his brain wasn't allowing him to explore mm-hmm. it fully so the impact on those around him wasn't necessarily fully consciously aware of. It was, like, mm-hmm. just so fixated on this, on this thing. Yeah. Um, so I think this is where, again, for, for many, if we're having conversations with people and we can talk about safety plans and things like that, they are, they'll always be helpful. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But there's, like I said, my, my mate that took his life in 2013, mm-hmm. I saw him only a few hours earlier. Mm -hmm. we didn't have a specific conversation about, you know, his mental state at the time and that sort of stuff. But, you know, man, I I wish we did, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe, maybe like, who knows? Um, But that, and that's, that's the sort of stuff we're talking about. Some of these um, conversations, you know, you can be talking with someone and then find out the next day that they've, they've potentially still gone through with something, or maybe that they all Mm -hmm. of a sudden felt like they were in a good place. Um, It depends on what their brain is offering them. And, Sometimes yeah. when you're in those really intense environments where you just don't see any other way out, it, mm-hmm. like it is, a, it's just a solution to, yeah, and it and it goes against it goes against human nature. Like human, like the human brain is designed to protect itself. You know, that's mm-hmm. why we, you know, we're born with fears of heights and loud noises. It's a safety mm-hmm. mechanism. So you can imagine the inner conflict that a human is in when mm. they are thinking that suicide is. Like the only like the last mm-hmm. resort, but their brain is actually designed to protect them mm-hmm. from death, you know, as much as it can.
3: Yeah. So
1: it's it's not it's not ever something that um you know would, would never doubt the seriousness of the conversation. Yeah. Um, and for me, it was really about just um opportunities of hope of another alternative, and that's mm-hmm. the other two the other things that came up in my time, and one of the things that my mum had said that night, just getting back to that story. At the end of the call, uh, I remember her saying, like, just promise me you'll go to your friend's place when you hang up the phone.
3: Mm.
1: I made that promise, not necessarily truthfully at the time, (laughs) but I got in the car um, Mm -hmm. and had this moment of realisation, like, the last thing you're going to do is um, lie to your Mm. mum. And that showed up not necessarily as a moment of clarity in in that. It was actually showing up as that internal dialogue full of judgement saying see, this is more evidence you are not good for this place. Like everybody around you gets harmed. So this is, but I was like, I did see some moment ago, well, I, what if I didn't, what if I did go to my mate's place and then I, I went and killed myself afterwards, then mm-hmm. I've fulfilled that promise to my mum and that maybe I'm not that bad. But I'm, right. you know, that's one little thing that I've done that is is not mm-hmm. that bad. But what it did, I did, I went to a mate's house um And he knew that I was having some problems at at, at my personal life at home Mm -hmm. Uh, and I stayed at his place for the night. And we didn't talk about how bad things got. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, Mm -hmm. I've had um, one of them reach out to me off another podcast I did that they said, like, I just didn't know. I didn't know that night that it was that bad. I was like, how would you? I never gave you any reason to think that. Um, And their response, um, you know, even just in messages, like this was not that long ago, was to say, like, I... If I had have known, I could have done more. And I was like, well, what more did you need to do? Mm-hmm. Like, why does it matter? Like, you, you did what needed to be done and that was to be there as a, as a, as a friend. Yeah. Um, so you, that's exactly what was needed. Yeah. You did all the things that were necessary. I'm still alive. Yeah. So, you know, what, what else is there to do? Um, and so that was important, I think, for both of us to have that conversation, albeit just through a couple of messages. But Yeah. Yeah, and that just bought, bought time basically in yes. that moment. It just bought time. And that's then how I was living my life. I was just, I'll see what today brings. Yeah. And I know that if um, it gets too much, I can check out. Yeah. yeah, And that's how I spent most of 2015.
0: Okay. And I
1: still wasn't telling anybody in the cops. Yeah. So it's, this is now May, end of May. They still didn't know I was still rocking up to work. I was still doing the best I could at my job.
0: Right. So, pretty much just doing what you needed to do on a day to day basis to just get get up, do what you needed to do.
1: Yeah. And it made sense because, like, that's, I was, I enjoyed policing. Yeah. I loved it. It was a safe place for me. I had good people there. I was starting to make some really good, close friends in the new role, Um, mates that I've still got, I'm still really good mates with them Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. so that was, like, I will never, like, wish for that experience to be anything other than what it was mm-hmm. um, for so many reasons. But for, like, primary reason is just, yeah, just the people that were able to, uh, you know, have in my life now as a result was, was absolutely worth it.
0: Okay. And following on from that, like, were you still having, I guess, thoughts about suicide mm-hmm. that continued throughout yeah, that time? every day. Yeah. Every, every day. day.
1: yeah, every day. Um, yeah. And so I think it was not so much like how is this going to play out. I just knew that it was an option. Right, um, yeah. All of a sudden it had become an option that was like readily available. It's like plan B. Mm. Whereas maybe before, you know, maybe for for some of the listeners might have it like once I've experienced suicide, like I can't now say that it's not an option because it was before. So now like it's it's always going to be an option. Mm-hmm. It's just not a very close one. Like it's miles yeah. away. And I've got strategies in place that would be numerous red flags would go up for me well before I got anywhere close to, mm-hmm. to that as a plan. Um, but it was all of a sudden it was like option like right there just mm-hmm. everything that i was doing was it was just there as a like you know it doesn't matter i was i was just behaving without con- like as if there was life without consequence because in my head if it got too much i was gone yeah so which was just feeling this existence of just living very much day to day without and a, and a, in a belief that i was just just a bad person um I was just I think in a message to one of my really good mates um Marley who we still do a lot of stuff with through the Aussie frontline community um I think I even described myself as feeling as though I'm just a darkness that turns up as a consequence
3: right. like that's
1: it so I was like yeah. well if that's what I'm here to do then I'll do that until I can't do it anymore and then I'll go yeah yeah but that's not true that's no. life, is de- <laughs> life is very no. different to that now yeah good. yeah yeah, yeah.
0: So, did you ever get sort of to that same point again?
1: Mm, I did. Um, it was the seventh of August, two thousand and fifteen, when I was at work, and two detectives came into the office and said, "You're under arrest for aggravated theft." They were from um, anti-corruption branch, and that was a that was one of like the next time that year that I was like, you know what. Yeah. This can't go on. Now this stuff that I thought was only impacting me in my personal life was now like it had just completely ruined my life. Like I had nothing left. Um So wow. um, the, the arrest itself was like for something relatively... Trivial's theft of a baseball bat um, that we came into possession during a job and um, made the foolish decision to to keep the bat. One of the people on um, my team took their concerns to Anti-Corruption Branch and they okay. came in about a week later and arrested me for the for the theft and
3: mm-hmm.
1: caused huge disruption to like the section that I worked with. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the biggest challenges during that time um, was... Was that like I the first thing I well, one of the first things I asked was to take my uniform off um, because i just
3: oh, I just yeah. couldn 't
1: bring myself to wear it anymore, not because I felt like you know they had done anything to me, but quite the opposite that I had just you know brought so much shame on the uniform that like I believed in firstly um, yeah. and that I had so many good mates that wore that uniform and they they all like you know upheld exactly what the community would expect
3: mm-hmm. um,
1: and I knew that then it would this would be fuel for the community to then have like just that doubt you know are cops yeah. doing the right thing and and I just fueled that um mm-hmm. for them and, and it was going to be the reason why they might have a difficult experience with a member of public in the future so
3: mm-hmm.
1: um the dangerous thing with that whole process one obviously I was then complete, I was suspended obviously effective immediately mm-hmm. um I was placed in a cell at the city Watch watchhouse um, which was a, a quite a big deal yeah fingerprinted photograph went through the process obviously as a um, as a arrested yeah. offender should yeah. and and would um, I applied for bail because I knew that if i didn't apply for bail that I would be detained um, it was a I know the process so yeah. I knew that the, the the charging sergeant would have to ask me questions that I was concerned I would be truthful with and that mm-hmm. was really around to my own mental health.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Police had no idea still that I was, right. wasn't was in a good way. Yeah. Um, and I think this was a huge thing for most people that knew me because, um, like, you know, I was good at my job. I was mm-hmm. really good at it. Um, enjoyed it. I loved it. I lived for it. Uh, I had my whole career mapped out, you know, I joined at 20. As I said, I was going to be, um, you know, ideally I wanted to be sergeant by 30. I, I, I was qualified. I wasn't in the rank, but um, mm-hmm. I was still learning and still having fun. But I knew that mm-hmm. I wanted to be senior sergeant by 40 and that could give me a couple of like probably um, commissioned ranks as well before I retired. And, mm-hmm. and then I'd be a retired cop doing retired cop things. <laughs> um, and like yeah. that was the, that was it. It was the plan. Yeah. Um, and I guess in that moment it was it was all gone. And I, and going back to the comment I made about my identity, I was like, well, if I'm not a cop, then mm. who am I? And, um, now the only thing left was I go back to just this darkness. So yeah. 7th of August, um, was the second, like that was the second day where it just went to the point where I was like, you know what? I can't live like that. I can't keep bringing this, this amount of harm to people around me.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, obviously i major like the the primary breadwinner at mm-hmm. home, um, because my wife was only ever subjected to my career, yeah. so yeah. she couldn 't necessarily pursue the things she wanted mm-hmm. around shift work and a and a young family um, yeah, and I had I guess all of those concerns of well, what now yeah, And thought it 's probably easier just to die um, so the the reason why i obviously i didn 't because i 'm here <laughs> talking to you yes. now but um and the reason why mm-hmm. is it goes back to. This sense of community and the people mm-hmm. that that were there for me, the boss that came that came to the city watch house and he he sort of pulled me aside in an interview room and he 's just like what 's going on mm-hmm. like this is not this is like that 's not what my reputation had allowed people to think yeah um, you know I've only been seven or eight months in this new job um, you know i 'd like to think that people had like held me in a high regard as a good operator mm-hmm. um, but and, and I think there was just a shock for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was own, the same day that I told them that I'm, like, I'm not well. And I said, look, I've been, I've been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and depression and, and this sort of stuff. And I, I will never allow for that to be an excuse for my behaviour. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very intentional about that. Um, it's, it doesn't excuse that. You can't I you can't have to be held accountable for my actions.
0: Yeah. It allows
1: me an explanation maybe to think, well, how is it that I could make such foolish decisions during that time? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that's that's probably the closest I can come to rationalising that process, that decision-making process, or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was that's when I kind of said like I'm I'm not in a good way, and it was too far gone. You know, like yeah. how do you? The damage is already done. So I didn't really give him too many options to to do anything other than just he just. From that moment I think he started to show up as a human being. Like I saw him as that. Okay. Um, he made himself very obvious as that rather than, you know, an inspector of police and yeah. this sort of stuff. And we spoke on the drive home about yeah. that sort of things.
0: How did it feel to finally be open about what, what you had been diagnosed mm. with and what you had been through to somebody at work?
1: Yeah. Well, um, yeah, that's, that's actually a good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question. Mm. <laughs> how, how did it feel? How did it feel in that did moment? It feel yeah. like a
0: weight was lifted. I don't.
1: Th- lifted? I don't think it did. I think like yeah. if I was to think back on reflection, I think the the because the weight was so heavy. Yeah, yeah it probably was a little bit off uh, that. Yeah, but um, you know, I I I can still like in my my brain shows me a picture of me sitting in that interview room, um, and it was just absolute defeat. Like there yeah. was no coming back from that. It was mm-hmm. um, so it. There probably was a sense of like, okay, well, now we might be able to actually address some of the stuff that's going on. But mm-hmm. I think I don't think I realised that at the time mm-hmm. it, because it was it was all still so chaotic. Yeah, so, so much going yeah. on at that time.
0: Yeah. So, did you take those suicidal feelings home with you mm. that day?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that was the plan. And okay. I, I even remember speaking to a detective um, at my car because you know they were searching my car for the baseball bat and. Um. And I I can't even remember the conversation. Only I I just, when I think about that particular time, I just know that while this lady was talking to me um, the whole time, I was like, um, today I die. And I haven't, I didn't, I left early. I hadn't seen or spoken to my wife or daughter that morning. They were both, what Grace was at kindy and Alira was at work. (laughs) And I remember just feeling like that's, I don't get to see them again. Like, that's it. So... When I had left the cells and they were taking me home after the, all of the um, administration stuff was done, the boss, um, he had asked, he said, you know, do you want me to drive you home or do you want this other person to drive, drive you? And I was like, no, you can drive me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the conversation had nothing to do with any of the stuff that was going on. He didn't talk to me about policing. He didn't talk to me about, you know, the bat or the job. He didn't talk to me about, like, how do we fix this? and. Mm-hmm. He was, he was just like, you know, what's, what does today look like now for you? Um, where's your wife? Where's your daughter? Mm. Where's your mum? Like where's your dad?
3: Mm-hmm. Do you have
1: brothers? You know, and he was just connecting me. I think for two things that were going on there that I talk openly about now is one is probably looking for other support mechanisms in that moment, yeah. trying to tap me into my community of care. But um, I think also what he did was um, showed me that I was something else.
0: Yeah, he
1: was. You know, you It was like this subconscious reminder. Like you're a husband, and you're mm-hmm. a father, and you're a son, and you're a brother. Um, and it was, it was more about that. It was more about like I could see. I, I've never had a long conversation with him. Maybe he would be a, like a good podcaster. Have us mm-hmm. both talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but i'd be fascinated to hear you know from his point of view what the intention was whether it was from a place mm. like if he knew what he was doing really or yeah. if it was just his you know his heart was drawn that direction and so yeah. he followed it so yeah but it, it was effective because it was a 40 minute drive mm-hmm. um and when i got home there was another uh, another um boss from the same area had driven my car home for me and these were two like really good guys um really great cops and and still held in very high regard in their in their job too very much like um frontline focused, you know, mm-hmm. the two people that I speak very highly of forever. Um, this other other um senior sergeant had driven my car home. And I remember the three of us were kind of standing at the bottom of my driveway. Um, they said oh, is home? I was anybody home. It's like, nah, you can have this like weird tense experience of like, well, what does this mean? Do we leave him here? Mm. Do we take him to hospital? Like, cause they'll will, all will be the things that I would be thinking. Yeah. Um, is this safe? Uh, and I remember mm-hmm. the conversation going something similar to like, I know what you think I'm going to do, but um, I'd, I'm not going to do that. Like this afternoon, I'll just, I'll see how this plays out, um, which goes back to a bit of hope, a bit of mm-hmm. like, let's just see what happens. Um, shortening the focus now, rather than going, well, what does this mean for my career? It was really like, what does it mean for my afternoon?
0: Okay. You know, can yeah. I survive
1: the afternoon? Let's yeah. just see what the next steps are. And, again, this is stuff that I talk to people now about when working with someone who might be in a high state or a state of high distress is shorten the focus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy for us to get caught up in, well, what's my life going to look like? You know, am I going to lose mm-hmm. my house and lose my job and my kid will come out of the school that she's been going to and all those sort of concerns.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It's like, no, no, bring it back. Like let's just come all the way back like, right, mm-hmm. right now. What do you need right now in this moment? Like if you need presence, you need company, you need connection. Let's just do that. Like if you need a, a short-term solution, let's do that. It's let we'll let everything play itself out in mm-hmm. due course. And so, like use now. I guess to use a lot of the stuff that I've learnt on reflection mm-hmm. to go back to that moment and say, right. Well, what? Why did? It, why didn't I die? And
2: mm-hmm. why
1: didn't? Why didn't I choose death in that moment? And why did I just? Like, why am I still here? And mm-hmm. for me, it's thinking, well, let's just see. And okay, okay, well, what's that? That is just a little bit of hope. And maybe there's an alternate possibility here. Mm-hmm. Um, and you stack a few of those together. And then you stop looking at the next five minutes. You start looking at the afternoon. You start looking at the next day. You start looking at the next week. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, things become a little bit clearer. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: So then
1: what did that look like? <laughs> <laughs> um, so for the following few months, so this was um, August 7, October was my first court appearance. Um,
3: yeah.
1: I went to court. The media throng was out the front. Oh, so yeah. They, yeah. obviously they loved a good story. I was on the radio that afternoon that, you know, police officer had been arrested mm-hmm. for theft and um, I was still in a really bad way. I was really paranoid during that time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was I was not in a very healthy way at all. But we got to the point where at the beginning of 2016, like January of 2016, in fact, I think it was like New Year's Eve, um, we had some family coming over because this was the other thing, like services um, is part of my family. Like My dad, um, it, when he was younger, he was uh, involved in the ambulance service um okay. my older yeah. brother did four years with the royal australian air force my um my dad's father did time with the raf as did my um mum's dad as well like, so service oh, yeah. shows up a bit
3: yeah
1: um and so you you like it's a it's a pre- it brings pride to the family m- me as well um mm-hmm. so then to have this experience and my granddad was my dad's dad was still alive. Mm-hmm. And so he was part of this first experience of all this unfolding was really challenging for all of us. Mm-hmm. I kept my mouth shut on anything. I didn't want people to to believe any of it because most people were just in disbelief, like, no way, you couldn't have done this. Like, they've got it wrong. Like, they've made a mistake and all this sort of stuff. But I was so scared to say, like, no, nah, like, I've made a dumb decision here and mm-hmm. I don't know how to fix this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it got to, um yeah, the end of 15 and I realised um Like I'd actually played out this scenario. For some reason I got it in my head. I was so paranoid at the time I thought that the police were going to come and get me again. Um, So I um, I was home with my daughter. It was like school holidays, albeit she was still quite young, and I had thought that they were coming to get me. So I had mapped out this. I was just getting the backyard ready. And I'd had this played out this whole process. I knew that if the cops came to the front door, um, I would show them enough violence that they would have to call Star Group and I would, knew that I would be able to force them to kill me on the front lawn. Um, right. And then that thought process though that I was stuck in this narrative in my brain for probably a good hour or so completely disrupted when my daughter came and asked me for some lunch. Something okay. as simple as like, Dad, can you get me a sandwich? Yeah. Um, and so I was like, well, I can't. I can't live like this. I, mm-hmm. You know, this isn't. This isn't good for anybody. And so I wrote a letter um, which I've still got it. I've still got my journal and it started with like this is not, I don't want to die, like this is not a suicide letter. I don't want to. I just don't actually know what to do. (laughs) Like, I'm stuck for ideas here. So I kind of just need to start talking to people and find out maybe who can help. So I wrote this letter out. I then read the letter to my dad uh, and then I read it to my mum and i was like yeah i've i've done this dumb thing like i've i've mm-hmm. taken a bat and i've kept it and got rid of it before like when i found out that they were going to come after me and this will happen within a short space of time but i panicked i didn't know what to do and i yeah, yeah. you know what i don't know what life's going to look like for me now mm-hmm. um and by by going through that process and starting to talk to like the couple of close mates that i had that um, I was still allowed to talk to because yeah. the investigation was obviously still ongoing so they isolated me from a lot of people. Yeah, which would um, have added another, oh, a dangerous. whole other thing did, to it, Because I had right? no one else. I had yeah. no one else, um, you know, cop in for nine years, whatever, at that stage I didn't yeah. just, yeah, completely isolated from anybody um, that yeah. wasn't in the job. So, yeah, it was, um, it was a challenging experience but it, it, what it showed me though was that people were saying like, don't care, I don't care about that, like how can we help you? Yeah. And so there was no, all this fear of judgment that I was, so I thought I would be banished from the family and how could you do this and it was none of that. It was like, yeah. you know, you're my son or you're my brother or you're my you're my friend and
3: mm-hmm. um
1: and so then I was like, okay, well I'm going to just talk more then um, yeah. and I'm going to then, I started to get this idea in January of 16 that I felt like I was relatively normal before, like all of this stuff happened. I was like, well, Mm -hmm. if I was relatively normal and my environment that I had subjected my brain to had then maybe reprogrammed itself Mm -hmm. in a particular way, I was like, I I wonder if I can reprogram it back or in a different direction or like do something that might be more useful. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started looking for content that I could like basically override um, a lot of the other stuff that was in my head. Stumbled across a, the motivational speaker. Um, there was this one particular video. It's UOU um, by Dr. Eric Thomas. And, um, you know, he's just one of these, like, inspirational speakers that, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I still watch his video now. And it got to the point where I'd watch his stuff for hours on end each day and then I'd read books and I'd watch other things and I was just constantly immersing myself in this different stuff that was feeding my brain. Yeah. And so, similar to like you're saying before about the plant analogy, said I think I'm a plant. Something that I actually—that's <laughs> kind of like my thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying like this is how we we have to look at ourselves. Yeah. If my environment, the soil that I'm planted in, is not healthy, can I plant myself in a different environment and put yeah. it closer to the sun or closer to the window, get a bit more water, like all those things, mm-hmm. and do that daily? Um, and started to notice a change
3: mm-hmm.
1: by May of 2016. Um, it was the 10th of May 2016, SAPOL uh, sacked me. They said, you know, well, yeah. thank you. well they didn't say thank you. They kind of said, you know, we, is- we, we appreciate you've you know, served for 10 years but um, we can't look past this act so I don't have a yeah. choice but to terminate your employment. Um, I was like, righto, about a week and a half later, I went to court for sentencing. I'd pled guilty in January of 2016 and said, like, I just need this process to speed up. Um, yeah. I need to lean into accountability here because this is part of, like, my healing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I pled guilty. The process takes some time. And then the weird thing is, I rocked up at court on the nineteenth of May, two thousand and sixteen. So for listeners who are playing co- paying close attention, mm-hmm. that's exactly twelve months to the day that I decided to like to first kill myself.
2: Yeah,
1: and I was like, this has to go my way, like, and and by that I mean a conviction was going to really get in the way of me. I, you know, if I could just put this behind me and, and take whatever punishment, pay a fine. You know, yeah. I've, I've, I know I've done the wrong. I've lost my career. Like, I've got enough challenges, um, I'll just get stuck in and and move forward. Um, Unfortunately, SAPOL went for a custodial sentence. They wanted me to go to jail. Um, Thankfully, the magistrate didn't agree with that bit, um, but did agree that a conviction was probably the best way to punish me. Um, Okay. So I was convicted with aggravated theft. So I'm now a convicted ex-cop for a theft Okay. Matter, you know that. Yeah. I, again, I often joke about like that not looking good on your resume or your LinkedIn profile. You you, you probably didn't see it on there. <laughs> I didn't yeah. see that
0: on the yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah, though. that's <laughs> right.
1: It's not overly useful yeah. in most environments. But it was one of those things. I was like, uh, okay, like this is there's got to be a reason. There's got to yeah. be a reason. Um, and it, even in even in that moment, um, like whilst I was. Still really unwell but I was certainly getting myself better. I was still just talking to lots of people about what was going on for me though and I was just expressing myself and yeah. n- no one was able to fix anything but they were just there with me and I knew that yeah. I had a small army like with my parents and my, my brother and my wife and a couple of close mates. I knew that I wasn't on my own, mm-hmm. um, and that I had good people that I trusted in my corner. And so, f- for me, I was like, okay, well, if this is my zero, if this is where I start from, then you know, I don't really care what you think. Like as a magistrate, um, I'll I'll just focus on one step at a time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, yeah, I did I did that and just started to regroup and refocus and had some awful days and some days Mm -hmm. that I had a few wins and I just started to stack a few wins together and I started to notice I was getting better I was trying things I was Mm -hmm. more engaged with my psychologist Mm -hmm. um I was more engaged with that more what are the things I could do daily so routine and structure became a focus Mm -hmm. doing one thing a day that just served me well and and validated that I was valuable Mm -hmm. um I just started to stack those on top of each other um, and just kept talking to people and talking and talking mm-hmm. and like connecting with people and then trying to do more stuff. Like how can I connect with a greater group of people? Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, well, if, if this small army that I have can allow me to stay alive, mm-hmm. what if I recruited a bigger army? What, what could life look like then? And then also how can I still continue to serve other people? because mm-hmm. that's still the basis of where I wanted to operate from.
0: Core value. Um, absolutely. Guess, right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I did a few different jobs that just didn't really fulfill that. I mm-hmm. um, yeah, went into like business development and found that there's a lot of translatable skills. turns out that in the police I was basically a salesman. If you didn't like my sales pitch, I could force it on you though. <laughs> it was probably the only upshot. Yeah. But, yeah, it was all just about relationships and communication mm. and, knowing people and you know tr- talking to people and trying to work out what they needed and what they wanted and yeah. whether I had the ability to achieve that um and whether yeah. it was reasonable so that served a purpose in um like I guess the private sector, but then yeah. still wasn't of service to others. So I mm-hmm. uh, then, yes, yeah, started to lean into the mental health side of things, mm-hmm. met some fantastic people. Uh, one particular lady who still ma- remains like a very close friend and mentor of mine who started getting me to think about mental health differently and the way that we support each other. Mm-hmm. And that was that was critical to like the turning point. That was probably about 2019 that I started this new job. Yeah. I had started to do some stuff working with other people already in twenty eighteen, twenty seventeen, like just you know talking to people mm-hmm. and just sharing my story with um, with a few cops and stuff. So,
2: yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, then I was like, nah, this there's a better way to do this. Um, mm-hmm. And how how is it that I can stop people from? potentially going down a similar path yeah. still losing cops um i remember speaking to a friend uh, and a mentor now um dr john lane who who developed this workshop that i'm now the program manager for which is really quite cool so but um
2: good.
1: and i remember saying it to him we're still losing people yeah so he's like okay what are you going to do so get rid of the emotion like what's what's within your power um, so it's like if you want to go into mental health, you need to have something behind your qualification of mm-hmm. some description so you can get in there. This shouldn't be an, a, like a difficult decision if that's what you want to do. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I qualified myself as a registered counsellor and which mm-hmm. opened up some doors and I just kept saying yes to things and getting introduced to people and um, and now, yeah, 2023 looks like very different to yeah. how 2015 looked.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm standing sitting in your kitchen you yeah. know, talking about <laughs> mental health and, you know, it wasn't on the cards. So.
0: Yeah. And I think it's a common theme that I hear from people and some of my previous guests like um, Kane Dover and Stefan, who I've had on, is that how much we get out of being of service mm. to others. And obviously we've talked about your career and that was a huge part of, of being you know, of service to mm. others. This is a different way that you can fulfill that mm. that that need and that desire of being able to help people and especially when you've been through something yeah. yourself and that's a huge driver of why I do what I'm doing mm. because I want to be able to help other people yeah. and, you know, and that's obviously filling that, you know, the maybe a bit of a void that was left
2: Absolutely.
0: for you and I just think that's It's such a beautiful drive mm. for it to be because, you know, how can we help others? How can Absolutely. we be of service yeah. to others?
1: And I think, like, you wouldn't do this if it wasn't important to you because <laughs> I'm sure, like, you know, you've got other things you could be doing, you know, yeah. but you invest time and energy and and money into, like, equipment and, like, connecting with yeah. people and, um, and doing this and the time that it takes to have, like, all, all the editing stuff as well. So, yeah. Um, for that reason, like, you know, it's to yeah. be of service to others. And I think for a, for a lot of people, um, you know, that's a common thing. I'm fortunate that I found myself in a position where I can combine my mm-hmm. passion with a way of, like, sustaining income so that I can provide for my family as well. Yeah. But I often say to people, like, there's no, don't, you don't have to try to look for the job that is going to do that. You can have a job that serves, you know, you may have a, yeah. a really high-paying job that you don't necessarily um, get huge amounts of, say service satisfaction from, yeah. but if it serves its purpose, do that. And then how is it that you might be able to then fulfill those other needs that show up in your life, like, you know, whether it's volunteering or doing yeah. a podcast or, um, you know, working with other people, having a second job in this space. Like mm-hmm. there's so many ways that you can, mm-hmm. you can show up still being of service to people. And I know that for a lot of service personnel, they talk about like the core values of being service, encourage and, and respect and integrity and excellence and, and values like that. You don't need the uniform, like, mm. to do those things. Like, they are part of who you are, and most likely you had those before you got in the job. Mm-hmm. The job allowed you to validate those. You take the uniform off. You don't leave your values contained within your uniform or within your job. Mm-hmm. You know, you could, mm. I could go and be a door greeter at, at Bunnings and mm-hmm. still operate from exactly the same value of service. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, I might have more opportunity to act from service if I'm in a role like that. Yeah. My God,
0: if I walk into a Bunnings, those people get a workout. I hate (laughs) that place. I have to ask where everything is.
1: (laughs) But but there's probably a good chance that people, like, are doing those jobs because, you know, they they want to be of of service. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's a bit more of a... Maybe that's not true. I don't know. But that's how I like to see it is that you don't have to, how you just show up in life, like each day you can still live from the same values base regardless of how you earn your money. Um, So it doesn't have to be this massive career change and and people Mm -hmm. will say like, oh, what what do I need to study? It's like, don't study anything. Like just I can't, I'm probably the worst person Mm -hmm. to say because I I don't know, I just said yes to stuff. You know, But I was I had put myself in an environment where I was now, looking for it I knew which direction I wanted to go on Mm -hmm. so I just follow I just follow where my head and my heart takes me so Mm -hmm. um it's it's one of those the thing like the organizations I get to work for work with um Mm -hmm. and you know I guess in some respect they're fortunate as well to to be able to have um good people within those organizations that come from a similar service base that can keep showing up and doing the work um yeah it's There's no secret other than just, like, give a shit about people and life gets a lot easier.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, like, you are doing so many wonderful things now and I think it's really incredible to, you know, now have heard your Mm. story and what you've been through and that you've been able to now use that experience and, and talk about it so openly and help other people. So... Tell us about all the things that you do mm. now.
1: Okay, um, yeah, it, it's a it's a bit of a long list, and I, I don't say it just you know, for how good's my LinkedIn profile team. No, no, not no, at all. Um, so I'm, I'm fortunate to work with a good team at Military and Emergency Services Health Australia, which is a charity under the Hospital Research Foundation Group. So that charity's focus and it's funded through philanthropic funds and commercial ventures from Hospital Research um, and many, in, especially in South Australia, probably be familiar with home lotteries and that type mm-hmm. of thing. Um Yep. You've probably got a ticket. Yeah, good. Yep. So if, you, if you're wanting to support our work, then please jump on, grab yourself yes. a ticket. <laughs> um, yes. So I, I work with those guys. Um, I've got a couple of roles there um, really around relationship management with um, stakeholders within the military and emergency services sector. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's a bit more of like executive level. Uh, and then certainly some of those on the fringe too, about how they might be able to better serve um, their frontline members. Now, mm-hmm. There's probably there might be some listeners going well. Good luck with that. You, I agree with you. Like it can be a challenging mm-hmm. ship to to steer in the right direction, but mm-hmm. um, it's, it's important work for me. So I'm fortunate with that. I'm also able to facilitate and, and manage some of the programs that we deliver to, which which affords me the opportunity of meeting frontline members still mm-hmm. um, across the services that and navigating their own challenges. Um, but we've got a strong team of facilitators that that all have service background. Uh, that get in and they do the workshops and they support people and it 's very much like a strengths focused i 'm um, not interested in like the you know the the broken narrative um, as okay. such we 've got some challenges we 've got some work cut out, but um, respect where people have come from and what they 've done mm-hmm. so i i say I truly am fortunate to be able to work with guys who are navigating their own their goat girls that are navigating their own challenges um, mm-hmm. so that 's good. I get to do that. Um, I'm a, I have my own business as well mm-hmm. and so there's a couple of service offerings under that. I do counselling, a registered counsellor with the Australian Counselling Association mm-hmm. um, and I'm fortunate to work with Marley who kept me alive for a, for a long period there. Um, yeah. So Marley has a, um, the Aussie Frontline community on Instagram, Okay. Um, community of like first responders and first responder supporters on Instagram, and um, it's really that that community is about. Um, you can buy t-shirts, buy merch that with a with a logo that represents the community. Um, it's a hybrid logo. All of the proceeds, like Marling, it's no money from it at all. All of the the profits from that go into a pool of money that is then used to fund um, counselling or mental health support for military and emergency services personnel around the country.
0: That's um, incredible. Oh, it's, a,
1: it's amazing what he's done and and what the community. That community has done, um, you know, certainly highlighted in, you know, the recent events where we had the the two um, officers that were murdered in Queensland. Um, what the community were able to do to then get behind the other officers that were involved in in that particular incident and um, those that continue to stay up in those environments is just just by showing love and support through, you know, sending a T-shirt and, and paying. There's a pay it forward uh, mm-hmm. concept on the page, which is fantastic. Um, so that's growing. I'm, I'm so pleased to be able to work with Marley in that. I've also worked with another close friend Um it, where we deliver workshop that is, or workshops that are probably more targeted to education and prevention. A lot mm-hmm. of the stuff that I do with with Mesher is um, more around postvention and transition support. Mm-hmm. So I'm like still wanting to be focused on those that are still in the job, those that mm-hmm. are coming into the job. We need people to be doing these roles and being in these environments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a really difficult job. It's a really challenging environment for many reasons. But um, yeah, I, I try to use. My experience and certainly my um, my friend Norelle, she uses her experience um, to, to help educate and hopefully prevent people from going down a similar path to me. Yeah. Um, do some consulting work uh, with Men's Health Organisation, the Male Hug. Um, mm-hmm. So they've, they're have they a great um, organisation based in Victoria but have national reach. They've got to very much sit in the... Um, education and community space about just trying to encourage men and people in the community just to reach out and connect with each other Mm -hmm. um so I'm yeah really privileged to be involved with the work they do I'm a national community ambassador for RUOK, so I get involved in a lot of their stuff around RUOK, which is the Incredible. 14th of September this year. Um,
0: 14th of September this year. 14th of September year.
1: 2023 yeah. um, is RUOK Day. Um, a lot of organisations now are doing a calendar of events throughout the year, so don't mm-hmm. feel don't wait until the 14th of mm-hmm. September. Get on to RUOK now if you want people coming into your organisation when people like myself. We're volunteers, we come in, mm-hmm. we share a little bit about the RUOK message um, and just try to help promote like the reduction of stigma and empower um, community members to have difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fortunate to get involved in some of their stuff as well, like a bit more of an, a, on a national level. Um, I don't know if that's. I think that's everything. Oh, and I. Also, recently been appointed a position on the state government's uh, suicide prevention council representing first responders, too. So, um, this, is a, this is
0: amazing.
1: This is a really great initiative from the state government, from the Malinowskis government, showing that they want an, an actionable, accountable measure that um, you know organisations and, and departments are then obliged to get involved with. So, um, the council's made up of representatives from a whole range of mm-hmm. um, community sectors. Um, I said I represent the first responders, and that's not to say that I've got the answers. Um, not at all. I've, I've been fortunate to have a lot of um, first responder exposure, so that they can tell me like what it's like on the front line and
3: mm-hmm.
1: what what they want said in um, brought up at, at Parliament House when we have our meetings. So, yeah. for listeners who are first responders, um, yeah, if you want to message me on Instagram if you've got something you want said, mm-hmm. um, I'm more than happy to pass that on. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think that's probably <laughs> everything. There's
0: lots of wonderful things few that things you're doing. There.
1: Yeah, a few things. Yeah, have um, a, a dad and, a, and
0: of a, a
1: husband as well in there somewhere. So yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Many hats.
2: Yeah, a few. Yeah.
0: And I feel very like um, what's the right word? Like I'm very grateful that I get to have this conversation with you, and I feel like I've learnt a lot throughout this Thanks. conversation, and it's just wonderful to see what you're doing out there in the mm. community and being of service to people. I guess I, maybe this will be the last question, okay. but I think <laughs> yeah. this is a really good one. Yep. To anyone who's out there who might be listening, who's a first responder mm. specifically, but anyone who's yep. listening, you know, who's perhaps listening to your story and resonating with it um, or is going through their own um, time. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for those mm-hmm. people? What do you want them to know?
1: Um, I, th- I think I, could, I don't want to simplify it too much, mm-hmm. but, it, it, but it is around um, trusting, try, like find the person that you trust that you can talk to. You mm-hmm. know, this is this is what we're trained to do, we're conditioned to do, we operate in teams, we operate in um, environments where we rely on each other. Mm-hmm. Um, talking to your mate or your partner, um, husband, father, mum, dad, whatever it might be, like talk, recruit an army, I guess, is mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to say here. And um, the, the, the reason why I bring that up is, you know, I mentioned the Beyond Blue survey that, that they did and over 20,000 um, people that did the survey, uh, less than 1% of those first responder community believed that if their colleague was struggling with a mental health challenge, they believed that it was their fault, less than 1%. Mm-hmm. So the likelihood of people around you thinking that you're less than or weaker or couldn't hack it or anything like is, is, like, is so low, is so low. Um, it's not necessarily to say that the next time you're on parade that you need to stand up at front and say, like, I'm not coping so well. Like, I get that. Um, if you don't have someone like that is in, in your close circle, then like, Message me, like you know, I'm more than happy to connect with people. Um, But I'm confident that you've got one one person that you can can lean on. The other the other thing that I'll add to the Beyond Blue thing, um, despite the fact that less than one percent believed it to be another person's the other person's fault, more than two thirds of that very same community said that they wouldn't put their hand up if they were struggling. So self-stigma is a really big thing. And I don't bring that up so I can just now can pass blame onto people to say it's on you to put your hand up and say something. But I say that because I'm trying to challenge the narrative that is so loud in those environments of, you know, what what are people going to think of you? Mm-hmm. Um, what, like what are people going to think of you if, you if you don't put your hand up? You mm-hmm. know, and I was saying before we started the recording is that like I would, I've lost people close to me um, and I now I, I often try to say I'd much rather have a difficult conversation with a friend of mine or someone I care about, even if someone I don't know, um, I'd much rather have a challenging conversation than not have the opportunity to speak to them again. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm sure... But most listeners, we know that like pretty much every listener will be impacted in some mm-hmm. way by by suicide, and I know that they'll get what I mean. Is mm-hmm. that you'd give anything, even if it's for a really hard shit conversation with that person, mm-hmm. but if that's all you had, you'd take it every day of the week. A hundred
0: percent. And I know yeah. when I did my mental health first aid training, mm-hmm. you know, we are, you know, we're, we're taught to ask somebody,
3: mm.
0: "Are you having suicidal thoughts?" Yeah, and that. Can be a scary thing to yeah. consider doing, but mm. it, it comes back to exactly what you just said. I would rather ask that person and feel uncomfortable perhaps for mm. a moment in that mm. in that setting, than wish that I yeah. had had that conversation down the track. Absolutely, you know, and it's it's not uh, trying to put blame back onto somebody for not asking at yeah. all. It's just encouraging more conversation mm. and how important that can be and we were discussing earlier as well around people being afraid to ask Mm. are you okay Mm. or are are you really okay because they're worried about not knowing what to say if they Mm. say I'm not okay Mm -hmm. and you don't have to have the answers. Yeah, that's
2: right. You don't
0: have to know what to to say. Mm-hmm. You just need to be there. That's it. For that person yeah. and 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 walk that path together. Mm-hmm. Be the person standing next to your friend and mm-hmm. and take the steps to to Google or to book the appointment with the GP. Yeah. So I think it's just, you know, I really encourage anyone who's listening mm-hmm. who's maybe worried about a friend or a a partner or yeah. a, a family member mm-hmm. to to have those conversations. But, no, you don't have to solve it.
1: No, that's right. And i said even me, I, I struggle within those moments. Like, yeah. It is not something that you get comfortable asking, like are you thinking of killing yourself and someone says yes and you go like, oh, okay, well, I know what to do now and this is easy to have the office. Like not at all. Like every time, you know, it scares the shit out of me because I'm mm-hmm. like, because like, I, 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 I want to fix, I want to find mm. the solution and, and I know that that might not necessarily be on me to, <laughs> to, I don't have the answer and I don't have the solution, but but you're absolutely right. So like, okay, mm-hmm. like, all right, what do you need? Mm-hmm. What do you need right now? Um, yeah. And if you're not sure, all right, well, let's just sit here with this and just, we don't need to rush to any big decisions.
3: Mm-hmm. Let's
1: slow everything down. Like, mm-hmm. let's just sit with it. And then maybe in time, tell me where this is coming from and we can start to then explore mm-hmm. and, and bring up some of that stuff and we might be able to find the biggest challenge, the biggest mm-hmm. priority, the, the thing that needs most focus and that might offer up then how might we get help here? Yeah. Who else could help us with this? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but you're right, it's, it's just being there next to them.
0: Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Often like if I think about myself and and I'm sure anyone listening can put themselves in the same situation you know if I'm having a really hard time or if I've really let myself slip and I share that with someone you know what do I want to happen
2: mm.
0: and often it might just be that I've needed you know I might need someone just to sit next yeah. to me or yeah. I might need a hug or mm-hmm. I, I don't often want somebody to tell me the solution. No, that's right, yeah. You know, I, I just want to feel heard mm. or I want to offload a little bit, yeah. you know, and of, of course we, I'm not encouraging dumping or of offloading oh, of onto yeah. somebody else but yeah. just to, yeah, just to be able to be heard mm-hmm. in that situation can can be very helpful
1: extremely validating and that's like mm. you know we, we spoke about the R U A K message you know there's mm-hmm. the asking there's then listening and then mm-hmm. encouraging action and checking in but um the listen bit is the bit that i love the most because mm-hmm. it's exactly like what you just said then is if we are, if someone feels heard they feel valued Mm -hmm. And I think we've probably all had an experience where you might be talking to someone and that person is on their phone scrolling or Mm -hmm. or there's a barrier and you know what that feels like. You've probably also had an experience where once that phone goes down and someone was to talk to you and like, you know, be really present with you and not be distracted by anything else, Mm -hmm. how valued you can feel just by being given an opportunity to say the things that are coming up. Nobody's rushing to fix things. No one's Mm -hmm. judging anything that you're saying. It's just a, it's just, you know, a feeling. This is how I'm Mm -hmm. feeling right now. There's, you cannot underestimate the power of allowing people just to sit in that mm-hmm. and just think, okay, well, I've got that off my chest. It's quite, and I think you touched on it when you asked me the question about what did it feel like when I told the boss in the mm-hmm. interview room, like, that's the thing. I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I knew. Yeah. Um, because I think that would help give me more to talk to from that point mm-hmm. to, to say, um, but yeah, I, I know, like I go to men's groups, I go to like, you mm-hmm. know, business group circles and Sometimes just being given a, you know, a talking stick or something that you just goes, right, you've got the next three minutes just to say whatever comes up and everyone just sits there silently listening,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like that, that's a good experience just to go, oh, I've got that off my chest. All right, yeah. now I can work through some of the fog.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you never know, like, in these circumstances, like who's, you know, listening and and then resonating with with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And by you being open and vulnerable like that, you give them permission, permission. to be as Absolutely. well. And that comes back to um, how important community is and connection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all need those yeah. things.
1: I'm, I'm mindful of you probably wanting to wrap the podcast up as well. I, but there's will, one dr- thing, I will talk all <laughs> yeah, night. Yeah, if, well, that's, that's my know? problem is that, yeah, my wife and good friends <laughs> yeah, will tell you that. I'll do I need to get you same. home
0: for dinner.
1: Yeah, no, that was say okay, once you get me going. But <laughs> you actually, I think we touched on the analogy through this recording as well where you spoke about being a plant and it's like this mm-hmm. is exactly like the analogy that I use. It's like if you, if you were to look at a wilting plant, and you, you're very quick to, most people are quick to be able to tell me what's wrong with it. You know mm-hmm. that it's, you know, it needs water, it needs love, it needs care, it needs nutrients, new pot, new soil, whatever it may be. How do you know that? Well, you know what a healthy plant looks like.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if you don't know, like if I go into an, like a in front of a group, and there's a hundred people and I'm doing a talk to them, I've never met most of them before. How mm-hmm. would I know? Like to me, that is just how they're showing up.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: The only way that I'd get to know that is by speaking to them
3: mm-hmm. and then
1: starting to get like, I guess, closer to them. Now, I'm in a fortunate position in a lot of environments where i am given the opportunity to be quite vulnerable and tell my story and to talk about that, which ex- it does exactly what you said before, mm-hmm. it gives permission for people to be vulnerable themselves. Yeah. More often than not, people then come up to me afterwards and they share about their own experience. Yes, This is what happens. So then as that happens, we can then explore this space together. I can then ask you questions, you can ask me questions and we can start just sitting in this and we can come up with maybe um, a strategy that I've used, you might tell me a strategy that you've used and together we're now building community and yeah. we've got this like strategy of like let's work together. Yeah. Like humans are a pack animal.
2: Mm-hmm. Like, we're
1: designed to be around people. And I think they said long-term loneliness can actually wipe off years of your life because yeah. it's just not what we're designed to do.
2: Yeah.
1: So if we were then to look at like this, this analogy of a plant, like most people, again, like if you see a wilting plant, if all your plants are healthy, here, so <laughs> no. you've got to maybe a couple out the front. No. I don't know. But it's
0: the full sun. It's yeah, not me, I swear. Right.
1: <laughs> but see, no one, no one blames the plant for not doing. Like, not trying to live. Like, you don't mm-hmm. go, like, oh, you know, stupid plant, try harder. <laughs> That's not what happens. Yeah. But we do it, we often do it with humans. You know, we see a human in distress and go, we'll just do better. Like, yeah. you know, sort your life out and like this type of stuff. And sometimes they just might not, well, often they're just not in the environment to be able to do that. And you might be able to, um, you know, modify their some parts of their environment mm-hmm. and maybe your contribution sitting with them could be enough. Like, it could yeah. be the bit of sun that they need or the bit of water that they need. So. You can never underestimate the impact that you can have. Most humans are are just trying to do the best they can to live their life with meaning and purpose,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: just like every plant that's out there. Mm -hmm. And the plants that do best are often in an environment where they're in a thriving ecosystem because Mm -hmm. if a solo plant out in your garden dies, the chance of it coming back is next to none. Mm -hmm. If a plant in a forest starts to struggle, Mm -hmm. the forest will support it. That's what it does. You know, yeah. we only have to go to places that have been severely impacted by bushfires to see the impact. Even with mm-hmm. mass devastation, it comes back. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where I think humans operate in a similar way. As a community, if you are able to embed yourself and grow a forest of people around you, mm-hmm. in those times when you're struggling, the, your community will support you. In those times that maybe you're doing well, you mm-hmm. will be able to support your community. It's a give and take. As Simon Sinek says, like, this is an infinite game. No one gets to the end of life and gets a trophy and says you won. It doesn't happen. Yeah. We're here for a period of time. We're custodians of a, of a short time and then we pass the, like, the baton over to the next people. So why would mm-hmm. we not then want to just go, well, how can I best serve my community around yeah. me? And in turn, you'll have a community that looks after you. It's yeah. just how it works.
0: That's really beautiful.
1: Well, I, sometimes it just sounds like ramblings but I hope it makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Meaningful think ramblings as <laughs> yeah, like yeah. So but I think that yeah, sometimes that can just get yeah, we can get lost in our own stuff. I mean, other cultures are much better at this mm-hmm. than than we are. We we can become very,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, is, isolated, very insular into our own little groups, but yeah um yeah, you know, even it happens in workplaces and that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. just um yeah, I'd encourage listeners to like if the mate calls, answer the phone, yeah. you know, or reach out to those people, pick you know, sometimes the, the mail hug actually have um talktober and it's um for the every day in the month of October. Um the intention is to call a mate or to connect with okay. a mate and yeah. catch up for coffee or just have a phone call or, or whatever it might be. Um I actually played almost like this. Russian roulette on my phone of like each day would kind of be like what I'd pick a letter like A. would mm-hmm. scroll stop call someone on my phone and just have a chat um then you know day two it yeah. just worked my way through the, the calendar it was actually really quite good I caught up with some friends that I haven't I was like oh, I haven't spoken to that person in a while this might be awkward because <laughs> I haven't you know yeah. haven't called them for years and now I'm going hey it's me or I'm sending them a text going should we grab coffee um nice. but yeah. like, man it was rewarding Oh. and I know it's hard, like because we've all we're all busy. Yeah, like, we're all busy. But like you said, scheduling rest in your calendar.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, wonder what it would look like to block out an hour in your day, and you know, yeah. you'd be surprised at how even if you have to book it. You know, I've got a mate that we book out months in advance. I said, "When can we catch up for lunch?" And he's like, "How's May looking?" <laughs> and you're like, "Good, let's go yeah. there because it yeah. will, it'll come around super fast." Exactly. Um, um, another mate that we catch up, you know, with a, a small. There's three of us, and we catch up every third Tuesday of the month. Aww. It's just in the calendar. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's
1: a thing. So, the only thing that challenges that is like significant events or traveling for work or whatever the case yeah. may be, but. The Otherwise, other, The good it's, thing is, yeah, you just there. know that if you if you can't reschedule, you know you're only four weeks away from doing it again. Yeah, so it's this constant, constant process. It takes work. It takes yeah. a lot of work, just like it takes work to keep your garden healthy.
2: Yes, you, need, you
1: know, <laughs> if you don't give it regular water, then yeah, chasing, you know, trying to keep it back every three months and going, shit, everything's dying. I better water it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if
0: my mum listens to this episode, she's going to be laughing because I really <laughs> struggle to keep everything in that garden right. alive.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. But, you know, I guess a lot of it comes back down to like, well, what's, the, what's your intention? Yeah. You know, if you don't, if well, you know, where your focus goes, your energy flows, as they say. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things. Um, we need to be consciously aware of it because yeah. I think time and time again we're finding ourselves going like, oh, I can't believe it's, you know March already I can't believe it's I know, right? 2023 like what mm-hmm. happened you know and this will keep happening
0: yeah it it's not happening. getting any slower <laughs> you No, know, that's
1: right and so life is only getting more and more challenging so
0: yeah
1: um yeah like here's an opportunity for us to connect with good people it doesn't cost you a yeah. great deal of money maybe a coffee here and there if you mm-hmm. can't afford the coffee go for a walk catch up yeah. at the beach like jump on zoom like whatever it may be um there's a stack of ways mm-hmm. you can stay connected with people
0: I remember um, the wonderful John Mannion from Breakthrough. At some point, uh, in one of the many times I've listened to him speak, Mm. and he speaks so well, Mm -hmm. was that um, his suggestion was um, that going for a walk with someone is an excellent opportunity to have a conversation with Mm -hmm. someone because rather than sitting um, opposite one another and that being quite um, confronting, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better term, you're now side by side with someone so potentially someone's going to be more likely to to open up a little bit if you're you know on a little nice little beach walk or something absolutely side by side
1: 100% kicking a footy throwing a frisbee. you know I remember the last time I caught up with a few mates that's exactly what we did went down the beach one Mm -hmm. of them got a footy at his car I was like I haven't kicked a footy in ages (laughs) Um, you know we're having a laugh we're running around chasing the footy and we're just all chatting and then went for a swim it was a nice warm night went for a swim we're just like you know catching waves and doing Mm. this stuff but in the meantime I'm finding out about their families, I'm finding mm-hmm. out about work, I'm finding about like, you know, other stresses and they're finding out about me too. And so yeah. um yeah, like John John's a great man, um, yeah. does great work. He's, he's he's certainly a passionate advocate in this oh, space as well. And, amazing. Um so yeah, I've got a lot of time for John and hundred percent agree with him. Like the yeah. stuff that the stuff that he's suggesting is he's, he's accurate. Yeah. He's a good man.
0: Fabulous. Yeah. If anyone who's listening today would like to find you, how can they do that?
1: Well, they could follow, like, you know, how we connected. If you find me on LinkedIn. Um, Matt Newlands you'll, mm-hmm. you'll find me there also on Instagram mm-hmm. so that's at Mattie, Matty M-A-T-T-Y dot Newlands
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: they're probably the two best ways to go or you can go to mattnewlands.com.au as well but um, okay yeah I'd also encourage people to check out obviously ruk.org.au the au, and also the Aussie frontline community on Instagram as well so
0: yeah um,
1: all really valuable resources and great groups of people.
0: Fantastic, and I will put all of that in the show notes for this episode, mm-hmm. guys, so you can always refer back to that. Thank you so much for coming here on a day after work. Mm-hmm. You are most definitely late home yep. to your wonderful <laughs> family, so apologies to them that I've kept you so long. But I, there's no way I would want to have made this episode any shorter or any different than it is. I really appreciate you being so open about everything that you've been through and your journey with mental health and, and the job. Mm-hmm. And I think there's gonna be a lot of people that are gonna take a lot of value out of that. So thank you for that. And thank you for everything that you're doing in the mental appreciate health that. space as well. So yeah. thanks and thanks so for reaching out to me Absol- on LinkedIn. <laughs> no,
1: that's right. It's worked out really well. So it did. yeah, no, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and you know, say some stuff. So yeah. Yeah, hopefully it's been valuable.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, guys, if you have been listening today and you want some further information, jump in the show notes, jump in, uh, onto Instagram. You can find Matt there. You can reach out to me. I'll put you on to him. And, yeah, just I encourage you if you're listening today and maybe you're having a hard time, go away from this and just make contact with one person. Reach out to one person and have a conversation about how you've been feeling. Good advice. Thank you. All right, guys, we are going to wrap the episode up now. Thank you so much for joining me, and I will see you next week. we? If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave me a five-star review. Even better, if you know someone who might benefit from listening to it, please tell them all about it. You'll find more information from today's episode in the show notes. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on High Tide, Low Tide, please email me at lisa, spelled L-E-E-S-A, at hightidelowtideau.com, or DM me on Instagram at hightidelowtideau. See you next time.